Hello and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. At long last, and as promised through much of this discussion, it's finally time to talk about John Gardner's On Moral Fiction. Um, and this one definitely comes with a little bit of preface here. Uh, Gardner is a complicated figure as far as this whole discussion goes. Um, we should definitely note his time. Uh, especially here, you know, as we've been kind of working through all of these writers, and technically I believe this was, in fact, written before Derrida's uh, discussion, that which we talked about last time. Um, but the key that I want to discuss is we're talking about a period of time 20 years after Sartre here. Um, Gardner is writing on moral fiction in 1978 is when it's published. So a lot of the stuff that he's talking about is kind of specific to his time, um, but I do definitely want to elaborate on it and sort of confront both his assumptions as they pertain to the 70s and his assumptions as they pertain to our contemporary world now. Um, because in some ways I think that a lot of Gardner's concerns have been kind of rectified, um, that our art today doesn't suffer from the same ills that they did in his own time. Um, but at the same time, there are some pretty haunting echoes uh, of what Gardner is warning us about and sort of discussing uh, here in the 2020s as well. Um, so to start, let's talk about the guy himself. Um, so far, almost every writer we've talked about in this lecture series has needed virtually no introduction. Um, we've talked about Tolstoy, we've talked about C.S. Lewis, we've talked about Jean-Paul Sartre, we've talked about Jacques Maritain. Um, all of these are pretty prominent thinkers and writers in their own right. Like, we don't need to necessarily explain who is Ayn Rand, we just need to explain what is her philosophy and why is it so controversial. But John Gardner could very well be the first writer on this list that you've never heard of, like, not even a little bit. Um... Sure, Maritain is fairly obscure unless you're, you know, interested in French existentialist philosophy or continental philosophy broadly. Um, but Gardner, like, you gotta work to find Gardner in many cases. Um, there are kind of two books that are especially popular of his even today. Um, the first is Grendel. Uh, that one, from what I understand, is still making the rounds uh, in certain, like, high school literary courses. Uh, but it is kind of on the wane, from what I understand, which is a real bummer, because Grendel is an amazing book, and I would love to talk about it at some point later on, you know, in some other lecture series. Um, and I'll definitely be referring to Grendel here, because, again, it's a big deal. Um, the other book that you may have heard of, besides On Moral Fiction, which has its own sort of weird kind of, like, inflammatory reputation is John Gardner's The Art of Fiction, which is still, as far as I can tell, uh, one of the best handbooks out there for creative writing classes. Um, and that's where we should really start here. Like, Gardner was a novelist. Um, he was a best-selling novelist in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, he had earned a certain reputation at this point, although it is real rare that you're going to run into any of Gardner's books besides the two that I mentioned today. Um, though, to be frank, I love them, and I definitely think he is an underrated author, and we should talk about that more at some point. Um, it'll certainly come up here as well. Um, but his primary claim to fame, at least sort of historically, is he was one of the great creative writing teachers. 
um, of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he basically founded the program that still exists at SUNY Binghamton. Um, he, from what I understand, is one of the main architects behind the Bennington Creative Writing Program, which is also surprisingly robust and, and kind of famous. Um, he's also a great teacher of great writers. Raymond Carver uh, studied under John Gardner and considered him one of his primary teachers, and Carver even wrote the, the introduction uh, to more modern editions of some of Gardner's other books, like On Becoming a Novelist. Um, so Gardner has a kind of weird reputation. He was a big deal in his time. He was widely recognized as a great teacher and a great author. But here in the 2020s, it's pretty rare that you've encountered him. Most of his books have been out of print for ages. Um, and you kind of got to work to track them down in many cases. I think there have been some relatively recent printings in like the 2010s of Mickelson's Ghost and some of his other bigger novels. Um, but again, unless you are familiar with this stuff, unless you are going out of your way to find it like I have, you're probably not that familiar with his work. Which, you might be asking some questions about that at some point, and those questions would be fairly reasonable. Um, just a couple of, you know, lectures ago, I basically made a fairly systematic list of, of, you know, writers who were famous and important in their own time and then have since been sort of lost to the ages. Um, and I have used popularity as a sort of way of determining the worth of an author in the past. And this is what's going to make this com conversation so difficult is on the one hand, I think Gardner is a truly excellent writer, one of the greats of his time, and certainly one of the best writers of the 1970s, even though nobody seems to agree with me on that front. Um, and the fact of the matter is, you know, Gardner is accusing and condemning a lot of writers that I have considered justly accused and condemned, writers that have been largely lost to time. Um, at one point, John Gardner makes this whole list in On Moral Fiction in Chapter 5, where he says, you know, here are all of these really famous writers of today, writers who everybody considers to be great, and I imagine that most of them aren't going to survive the century. Um, and we might very well look at that list now that we have survived the century and find his arguments fairly justified. Like, take a look at this on page 93. The generous critic might hold up numerous other writers as important artists. John Barth, Thomas Pynchon, Joyce Carol Oates, Robert Coover, Donald Bartelm, James Purdy, William Gaddis, John Hawkes, Catherine Ann Porter, Guy Davenport, John Cheever, Bernard Malamu, J.D. Salinger, Eudora Welty, and John Updike, to name a few. How many of them will outlast the century? Perhaps Malamude, certainly a powerful artist at his best. Conceivably Guy Davenport, if sheer precision and uncompromising artistry count, but his output is spare and his work goes unadvertised. Possibly Eudora Welty, because of one superb novel, Losing Battles, a handful of stories, and her secure position as Southerner and woman in our college American literature courses. Possibly Joyce Carol Oates, for a few ex excellent short stories. Possibly Salinger. But I suspect that what I've typed above is a list of inflated reputations. Some on the list will die quickly of pure meanness, Porter, Coover, and Gaddis. And some will die of intellectual blight, academic narrowness, or fakery, Pynchon, Updike, or most of his work, and Barth. This is kind of a weird list to confront here in the 21st century, because it's true that almost all of them have not outlasted the century. The handful that he identifies as possibly doing it does include some names that we're probably familiar with. Joyce Carol Oates has survived the century, largely because she's got some really good short stories, just like he said. 
Um, and because, you know, she continues to sort of be prevalent as this uh, famous woman writer dealing with women's issues especially, and therefore securing her position in those American literature courses. Possibly Salinger, he says. And Salinger did, largely because high schools have adopted The Catcher in the Rye as sort of this major text of its time. But to sort of sit with Gardner on this one, I haven't been able to read The Catcher in the Rye since college. Like, I took another stab at it when I was in college, and I was like, this, this is unbearable. Um, and I know that there are some Salinger fans out there. Like, there are hardcore Salinger fans out there. But I suspect that his stock is waning these days. And so are all of the other people on that list. The other names that he brings up, you know, Guy Davenport he thinks might survive. I don't even know who that is besides, you know, through John Gardner. Eudora Welty does get around again because of those same uh, courses that he mentions. Um, and other than that, like, Thomas Pynchon does survive just because Gravity's Rainbow is considered a classic in its own right. And at the very least, you know, Knives Out referred to it not too long ago. Um, John Updike, he is somehow kind of a survival like he is one of the great male narcissists that uh david foster wallace identifies and therefore simultaneously like a curiosity of the 70s 80s and 90s and yet not considered a influential or important writer today um and of course john barth who is one of gardner's major targets throughout this entire book and like we've talked about before, he was a big deal in his time and has very much run his course. So on some, in some ways, Gardner is dead accurate here. Like, you would be lucky if you've heard of Bernard Malamute or Guy Davenport or William Gaddis or, you know, half of the, the authors on this list. The few that he makes exceptions for did in fact possibly survive, although some of the ones that he explicitly condemns for pure intellectualism, like Updike, have in fact survived better than he might think. Um, so it's kind of accurate but at the same time Gardner's champions are equally forgotten um he brings up John Fowles book quite a few times and stresses how great it is as a sort of metric of you know measuring the the worth or lack of worth of literature in our own time namely the 1970s and I hadn't heard of his book until encountering this uh on moral fiction and I have not you know stumbled across it in my travels otherwise Gardner himself, as much as he has secured a certain position in literary courses again because of the art of fiction and because of Grendel, nobody's reading Mickelson's Ghosts or the Sunlight Dialogues or the Wreckage of Agathon except me and a couple of other staunch Gardner fans who could just as easily be compared to Barth and starch, uh, staunch Barth fans. This makes it kind of weird to talk about the 1970s because in many ways nothing survived. Like, part of this is because the way that novels work has changed so dramatically, as we've talked about in this lecture series before. And you can see hints of Gardner's references to writers who have, in fact, survived the blight. Um, so, obviously, Toni Morrison is a big deal, an even bigger deal than she was in Gardner's day, and Gardner gives her the sort of due recognition um, based on the couple of works that she's published at this point, undoubtedly The Bluest Eye and probably Song of Solomon. Um, he also recognizes Joseph Heller, uh, the author of Catch-22, although we get the really cryptic reference that, like, 
Catch-22, everyone, enough has been said about Catch-22, um, which I kind of wish he said more about Catch-22, because that one definitely has survived to the present day, but none of Heller's other work has, including Something Happened, the work that John Gardner kind of tears apart here. Um, Vonnegut is obviously alive and well. He's one of the few people to survive the blight, and we could attribute that to some misapprehensions of Gardner's, but Gardner kind of nails him as far as you know, weak-willed morality in Slaughterhouse-Five, but much more fun to read in something like Breakfast of Champions. We'll come back around to Vonnegut and, and Gardner's targets here. Um, but what I want to stress here at the outset is that as much as I am about to do two whole lectures on John Gardner and sort of stressing his perspective and his sort of acute moral sensibilities here... I recognize that to do so is kind of ridiculous. This is an argument that is still going on today. Like this whole business of primary versus secondary fiction, the whole difference between moral and this sort of like uh, critical or nihilistic fiction. This is definitely an issue that is still being brought up. Um, I remember, you know, back when I was in college in the mid-2000s, the sort of representatives at the time were Ben Marcus on the John Barth, William Gass literature as purely, you know, uh, linguistic games uh, territory versus the likes of Jonathan Franzen, who was very much a Gardnerian conservative novelist writing stories about stuff. And he continues to do that to this day, and I assume that Marcus is still publishing, although my understanding is, you know, the, like, three books that he wrote by 2007 or so were not well-received. I tried to read Ben Marcus. It was difficult, let's say. Um, but we should also recognize that this distinction that Gardner is highlighting is also not in a vacuum. We've run into it before. You could very much argue that Rand is taking the Gardnerian conservative fiction as moral discussion angle, just as Derrida seems to be much more interested in the uh, literature as linguistic play angle. Like we talked about last time, he's not interested in the business of storytelling. So what gives Gardner credentials then? Why does he make the list? Why am I talking about his philosophical perspective rather than, say, John Barth's or William Gass's or any number of these metafiction writers who Gardner is sort of singling out to attack? And I think the fairly obvious answer here is that, again, Gardner's pretty accurate in most of his predictions here. Um, he, the writers that he seems to think are the worst tend to be out of circulation at this point. Um, and as much as some of these writers have survived, none of them are nearly as influential as they were 50 years ago when Gardner is writing. Um, and the other side of it is, I think, at the end of the day, as much as Gardner himself kind of vanished into obscurity, there's something artificial about that. See, when Gardner published on moral fiction, he absolutely earned the ire of the entire academic world. They absolutely railroaded him. Nobody talked about his most recent novel, and Gardner died shortly thereafter in a motorcycle accident. So as much as he had earned this sort of position of significant standing in the academic world as this antagonist of the likes of Barth and Gass, you know, there are multiple occasions where he was interviewed, like, sort of with uh, his intellectual adversaries and got into some pretty, you know, pretty heated philosophical debates there. Um, Gardner, too, kind of got run out of the academic community. 
on moral fiction, as much as this is kind of a weird cult work of literary criticism in its own right and sort of has earned its kind of inflammatory reputation, um, it is. It was at the time so controversial and so antagonistic to so many academic departments and uh, schools of thought that Gardner was very much kind of removed from the canon. Um, his novels were no longer recognized, nor have they really been picked up since. And I don't know whether we can successfully say, you know, Gardner was a misunderstood genius or a maligned genius and his day is yet to come, his star will rise again, or what is more likely, he too will be forgotten. He too will be lost to obscurity in some respect, with the exceptions that I noted. Again, uh, Grendel on the one hand and, and the art of fiction on the other. Um, but I do think that Gardner may very well be in for a second life. Um, Gardner was a medievalist. Uh, he was a scholar and, and teacher of the medieval classics. Um, you'll notice that he spends a lot of time talking about Dante in this text, and we'll talk about that as well. He was a Chaucer scholar. He obviously is very familiar with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the old works of Homer, the old works of the Greeks. Many of his novels reach back to these eras and sort of talk about, you know, the ancient Greek world, like the Wreckage of Agathon or uh, his book on Jason and Medea. Um, or they are looking at the sort of medieval world like Grendel does and, and sort of confronting and reinterpreting Beowulf. Um, like, Gardner was a scholar of a realm of literature that I suspect is due for a comeback. I know a lot of people who through fantasy literature and, and other sort of speculative works have kind of been coming back around to the legends of King Arthur, largely through the guidance of Tolkien and other Tolkien fans hang sporadically hanging around academia. Um, I suspect that medievalism is due for a comeback, and there is a distinct possibility that if medievalists and the sort of study of medieval literature and art is going to become prevalent again, then Gardner may very well find a second life, because a lot of his scholarship is devoted to that. Um, this is pure speculation, obviously. Like, I can't justify that in any way. Um, and I should emphasize that part of the reason why Gardner hasn't had a second life so far is because as much as he is a medievalist and as much as he is interested in the medieval worldview, he was, at the end of the day, writing contemporary literature. Um, which, again, not much of that has survived in the 70s and 80s, and the same people who are interested in the medieval worldview tend not to be interested in contemporary literature, or at least contemporary realistic literature. They are the champions of Neil Gaiman. They are the, the champions of contemporary fantasy writing. And that kind of wasn't Gardner's bag. Now that said, in the art of fiction, Gardner has nothing but nice things to say about fantasy and science fiction and comic books and all sorts of stuff that he clearly appreciates. But Gardner was himself a contemporary writer of realistic fiction, at the very least diving into the occasional historical work, but that was the extent of his genre fare, if we may call it that. Um, the fact is, contemporary fiction is on the wane, and since contemporary fiction is on the wane, Gardner's star, as far as his novels are concerned, has been slow to sort of come up again. But I suspect that the reason why we all hate contemporary literature is for at least some of the reasons that Gardner is highlighting here. 
Um, the end, at the end of the day, the reason why we are so disgusted with the likes of Updike and Barth and Gas and so on is because they are unreadable in exactly the way that Gardner calls them out for being unreadable. And that extends to contemporary literature, whether it is Jonathan Franzen's, you know, Russian novel-esque treatment of family dynamics, or the likes of Ben Marcus doing his sort of navel-gazing, masturbatory, totally obfuscation literature the way that Gardner would condemn in his time. So, with that sort of as our introduction to what we're all talking about, Gardner as prophet, Gardner as lost, Gardner as you know, relic of a bygone age, Gardner as just missing the sort of contemporary trends of the time, let's talk about what exactly he is trying to do here, successfully or unsuccessfully, whatever that project might end up being. Um, and the first thing I should stress, you know, right from the outset, Gardner kind of drops a bomb by stressing how significant he thinks this whole discussion is. Like, I absolutely love that opening metaphor that he includes. A book as wide-ranging as this one needs a governing metaphor to give it at least an illusion that all is well. It was said in the old days that every year Thor made a circle around Middle-earth, beating back the enemies of order. Thor got older every year, and the circle occupied by gods and men grew smaller. The wisdom god, Woden, went out to the king of the trolls, got him in an arm lock, and demanded to know of him how order might triumph over chaos. Give me your left eye, said the king of the trolls, and I'll tell you. Without hesitation, Woden gave up his left eye. Now tell me, the troll said, the secret is, watch with both eyes. Now... Again, Gardner's a medievalist, and he is pulling from Norse mythology here, which, again, is sort of super familiar to John Gardner. It makes sense that this would be the metaphor that he uses. But what he is essentially arguing to us is, if art, like Thor, is pushing back the forces of darkness, if the whole purpose and function of art is, as Tolkien or Lewis might say, to sort of restore our faith in morality, in truth, in the business of going on living, art has been failing at that task. And that is an incredibly important task to undertake. Like, Gardner underscores this throughout the entire first chapter. He is comparing it to these, you know, cosmic battles of good versus evil. He is using North mythology's specifically because Norse mythology argues that it is fruitless. The war against evil will end, you know, badly. We are all doomed to perish in this war, and yet it is worth fighting anyway. This is what Gardner sees the role of art to be. As artists, we are pushing back the tide of nihilism, the tide of sort of entropy, as Gardner puts it, it is our job to restore hope, to restore faith, to restore the vitality of the things of this world that are, in fact, good. And according to Gardner, there are a lot of novelists, there are a lot of artists, broadly speaking, who are dropping this ball, who are not taking up this mantle, who are in complicit with the forces of evil and making the world a darker place rather than a brighter one. Um... And this, to Gardner, is all important. Like, this is what art is for. This is what human life is for. Like, on some level, Gardner is definitely elevating the task of art to a level that very few other artists and thinkers and philosophers and critics and ethicists would agree with. But this is kind of what drew me to Gardner in the first place. 
Like, I kind of love this guy specifically because, on the one hand, as an aspiring writer, I find his, you know, his interest in literature and his commentary about literature and his directions for how to compose literature very helpful and compelling, but also because he understands the same cosmic battle of good and evil that I suspect that I'm caught up in, or at least the same sort of lens of understanding the world as a spiritual battle between good and evil that I see uh, the world as as well. And Gardner isn't a Christian. Like, Gardner's relationship to Christianity is actually super-duper complicated. He's, like, very much enamored with it, and he's definitely sort of aligned with Christian values, even though he doesn't accept the, the you know, truth of Christianity. Like I said, we're not going to get too deep into that, but at the very least, I want to sort of stress that the basic Christian values, you know, not killing each other, loving one another, you know, being decent and just, that is what Gardner is trying to champion here, and that is what he sees so many other writers as either uh, maligning or fighting against in some respect. Um, and which is why he spends the entire first half of this book basically outlining, outlining what he calls his premises on art and morality. Um, he assumes, like, he doesn't question this. He assumes that these basic Christian values, again, being decent to one another, loving one another, all those things, are good. He doesn't question that. He doesn't see any reason to question that. He doesn't think anyone who is questioning that is doing so in good faith. Um, and he tends to think that most of the people who are, in fact, sort of, you know, crapping on these philosophies or perspectives aren't doing so for moral reasons. Or if they are, their morality isn't coming across because they're too busy being wrapped up in the sort of jazzing around, as he calls it in The Art of Fiction. But I'm very much getting ahead of myself here. What I want to stress is Gardner is, considers this a life or death issue. He considers this to be of the utmost importance. He is very much profoundly concerned with the fate and plight of art in his day because he feels like this is the harbinger of a great darkness to come. Um, and he is calling out a great number of writers who he sees as derelicting their duty, either deserting the front lines or because they are fighting for the enemy or however you want to understand it. Um, now that said, we should be cautious here. As much as Gardner sees this as a battle of good and evil, sees the role of art as having this important role in sort of staving off the darkness, so to speak, we should also note that Gardner very rarely says that there are bad writers in the sense of, like, they are working for the enemy. He more typically frames it as these are writers who either through ignorance or perverseness or whatever are not producing art worthy of themselves. They are misusing their talents. They have misdirected their aims, largely because they have abandoned this moral outlook that Gardner associates with the likes of Tolstoy. Um, so with that in mind, we should understand that like there aren't necessarily heroes and villains here. There are just artists who will have their sights on the right target, and there are artists who have lost sight of what they are supposed to accomplish, and therefore sort of haphazardly allowing, you know, evil books to dominate the current landscape of artistic worth. 
Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about first his sort of philosophical premises, then his heroes, and then his so-called villains. Um, and fortunately, because Gardner is an excellent writer and he knows how to organize this stuff, um, he does tend to group these, these folks into units of three. Um, so with that in mind, let's start with his heroes. Um, the sort of writers that Gardner holds up as being this kind of paradigm of what art is supposed to be and what art is supposed to do. Um, and again, his examples here are pretty obvious. First and foremost is Tolstoy. Like, nobody in this book gets more, like, quote time than Tolstoy uh, and possibly some of Gardner's own work, but we'll confront that later. Um, he quotes from on uh, What is Art and the other essays on art that we talked about earlier on in this lecture series extensively. Uh, we get multiple quotes from the essay on art, like not what is art, but the essay that is on art. Um, he quotes from Guy de Maupassant's introduction the one time. Like, he, I definitely specifically sought out the same version of what is art and the other essays specifically so I could, you know, keep up with Gardner here. Um, and I definitely don't regret it. There's a lot of meat there, like we talked about when we talked about Tolstoy. Um, clearly, Tolstoy is one of the good ones, as far as Gardner is concerned. Even if Tolstoy is confused, and Gardner admits this, like Tolstoy in his, you know, post-conversion super-Christian mode is occasionally weaker um, than Tolstoy in his more perspicacious, less polemical mode. Um, Gardner is... Gardner sees Tolstoy as at the end of the day, being on the side of the angels, or perhaps to fit his metaphor, the side of the Valkyries. Um, Tolstoy recognizes the moral implications of his work. He recognizes that art has a morally teaching function, um, and he aspires to write literature that successfully brings about more morality that teaches lessons about you know what we are supposed to be and to do um this is obvious in tolstoy and we won't dwell on it because again we spent you know three weeks talking about tolstoy and his view of art gardner basically says okay that um he has some disagreements he definitely seems to hold up some of tolstoy's adversaries as though maybe they're better than tolstoy was willing to admit um, but it's honestly pretty rare Gardner seems to quote Tolstoy without any sort of question or, or you know, contextualization to undermine Tolstoy's point. Uh, the few times that Gardner does say things like that, it's like saying, hey, resurrection wasn't terribly successful because, you know, Tolstoy was being too preachy at that point. Um, then we've got Homer. Gardner doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about Homer as sort of moral exemplar, but he does recognize that Homer is a moral writer. Um, that he does sort of hold up these heroes as examples of how we are supposed to behave. Um, which might be a little weird, seeing as, like, Homer is, you know, condemned by Plato for the, the very same sort of, like, uh, writing and, and behavior. Um, but nonetheless, like, note what Gardner says here. With the worship of Zeus substituted for Christianity, this is almost exactly Homer's position. Though the position is worked out in more detail by Homer. Worked out, that is, in the Iliad and elaborated in the Odyssey. What the warrior hero does on the battlefield, especially if he is half-god like Achilles, shows ordinary men what the gods love. Despite their bickering, the gods, like men, desire order. This, Homer claims, is why Poseidon decides to give way to Zeus his equal. 
Sometimes the hero is directly possessed by the god, and thus for a while is the god, as Achilles is possessed by Zeus during his purgatory rampage. At other times, the gods trick the hero into serving as their image and model for mankind, as when Athena tricks Hector into standing and fighting for his doomed city instead of running. Every hero's proper function is to provide a noble image for men to be inspired and guided by in their own actions. That is, the hero's business is to reveal what the gods require and love, as do Hector and Achilles and those heroes still mightier of whom Nestor speaks. And whereas the hero's function, like the function of Tolstoy's Christ, is to set the standard in action, the business of the poet, or memory, or epic song, and also the business of arts other than poetry, is to celebrate the work of the hero, pass the image on, keep the heroic model of behavior fresh, generation on generation. This is incredibly clear in Homer. Like, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Gardner is saying, specifically that whole God-supporting-the-order-of-the-universe thing, although that is to some degree present. Um, but at the very least, Homer seems to say that both the gods and humans have a vested interest in seeing the conflict end, something that we see play out very much through the Iliad and the Odyssey, and very much come to a conclusion when Athena finally tells Odysseus, all right, we're done doing vengeance now, shut up and sit down. Uh, but at the same time, I 100% agree with the way that Gardner perceives Homer's view on mythology. Namely, that it is the artist's job to portray the hero as demonstrating the virtues and uh, morals of the age, and then it is the poet's job to enshrine those values and morals and communicate them, pass them on from generation to generation. That's what Gardner understands the role of the poet, philosopher, hero, or poet, philosopher, artist to be. That's what Homer understands it to be. I don't have any challenge there. But the big one here that Gardner spends the most time on, like literally the next five pages of this book, um, is on Dante. Dante for Gardner is sort of his paradigmatic exemplary artist. Um, and his reading of Dante is kind of fascinating here. He is definitely, you know, making some assumptions about Dante's perspective, but he does so with typically scholarly justification and evidence. Namely, he understands this as Dante trying to work out his own morality through the effort of posing all of these moral questions before Beatrice, Dante's beloved, and asking, can I say this, can I do this in front of Beatrice without being ashamed? Can I, in fact, you know, like, go through all of hell and see all of these people suffering? Can I, in fact, go through purgatory and paradise and see all, and sort of, like, act and understand what the, the benefits of these places are? Can I do that in the light of Beatrice? Can I question myself in the light of Beatrice? And can I ultimately come to conclusions about what she would want and use that as a moral compass? Now, we are not quite up to Gardner's full explication of exactly how this works, how one goes about doing moral art. That is going to be for our next lecture. Um, but at the very least, we see sort of a scheme here. That Dante, through the Divine Comedy, is asking himself the question, what is good? What is it good to do? If, in fact, Dante is confused about his morality due to his constant fighting with the factions in Florence, now Dante is finally trying to straighten himself out, not by reference to typical Christian religion, which has been perverted by all of these factions, but rather by looking at this moral exemplar, Beatrice, and sort of holding that up as the standard for behavior. Now, this is a pretty good interpretation of Dante. It's certainly the one we're going to be wrestling with for the rest of this lecture series, which is important because Dante is kind of the 
paradigm artist paradigm story that uh, Gardner is going to wrestle with, at least here in the first book. This is his example when he starts questioning what art is for and what the what morality should actually look like. Um, so we should definitely be familiar with this model. Um, Dante is telling the Divine Comedy in order to work out his own morality. And to some degree, this is what Gardner wants all art to do. It should be engaged in the same process. It should be asking these same questions and coming to earnest conclusions, even if they are conclusions that are at odds with conventional morality. And Gardner stresses that there is, in fact, a difference here. Um, when conventional morality is bad, it is the job of art to correct it. And when conventional morality is good, it is the job of art to reinforce it. So, yes, the values, the morality, should be unchanging from age to age. Now, artists might emphasize different things at different times as far as Gardner is concerned. That's fine. But what he is so upset about isn't so much that there is, like, art out there telling people to go murder one another, although, you know, arguably there is at this particular point in time, and he says so a couple of times, or at least makes a couple of veiled illusions. Um, he emphasizes, you know... If, in fact, Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther caused all these young men to commit suicide, then we should be asking one of two questions. Namely, you know, did we misinterpret Goethe, or did Goethe write a pernicious book? Um, and, obviously, the arguments can be made on either end. Um, but what Gardner is very much emphasizing here is that rather than having a sort of corrupted morality... Contemporary art is scared of being moral. It is cowardly. It is failing to do what it is art's job to do. That's what Gardner is so upset about. Um, and the reasons for this are also, again, in threes. Um, Gardner brings up three sort of philosophical perspectives that he considers to be the primary contributions to this moral cowardice, so to speak. Um, and I want to definitely highlight all three of them and sort of talk about how they interact with art, especially. The first one is Freud. Um, again, what Gardner stresses here is Freud's interest in sort of understanding people's motivations according to these, like, potentially corrupt uh, reasons. Um, so, again, like, because I don't want to spend too much time explaining Freud's philosophy here. So let's look at page 46. Uh, consider what Freud, Sartre, and Wittgenstein would have done to our model moral artist Dante. Freud, at least as he is popularly read, would have sought to persuade Dante that he did not really love Beatrice, nor she him. He saw in her an image of his mother, or of food. He transferred the physical gratification of suckling at his mother's breast and his mother's sexual gratification and burden relief to the useful misconstruction mutual love. And after the death of Beatrice, writing the greatest love poem in the world, he sublimated the brute emotions of hunger, loss, and rage against death as a father facade in a way acceptable to his time and place, his superego. In short, here we have a philosophical perspective that has become more and more widespread here in the 1970s, namely Freud's psychoanalytical theories about human behavior and human activity, and how it is, at the end of the day, spelling a kind of doom for literature. 
how are we supposed to read Dante as working out his frustration, as trying to come to a moral conclusion about what he should and should not do, how he should and should not behave, if at the end of the day we're going to stop him and say, actually, he's entirely deceived, really anything, any respect he has for Beatrice is rooted in, you know, infantile pleasure... Uh, seeking and basically comes down to a sexual confusion of his desire for food. Um, what Gardner is stressing here is if you are in fact taking Freud's fundamental premises seriously, or again, Freud as he is popularly read, you are going to be unable to recognize the worth of any human action whatsoever. In short, Gardner is saying that if we trust Freud, there is no grounds for morality, period, much less, you know, moral interpretation of art or moral creation of art. And it's kind of hard to argue with that. Like, if in fact there is no free will, a position that Freud would probably stand behind, or again, Freud is popularly understood, then there is no reason for us to prescribe some actions over others if we are all just doomed to behave in certain ways. Like, yes, we could argue that, you know, having some notion of what is moral might contribute to the social pressure that might then cause people to behave in this sort of pragmatic sense, but that would be unconvincing. Um, at the end of the day, the reason why people behave morally is because they think it is good to do so. Whether or not that motivation is pure, or whether or not it is motivated by some deep-seated, you know, anxieties lodged in the id, kind of doesn't matter. Um, so why would we emphasize a moral system that reduces the possibility of us understanding ourselves as moral beings? So what Gardner is essentially saying here is Freud is one of those thinkers, one of those systems of thought that makes moral literature impossible because it makes morality impossible, or at least morality as we've understood it. And here in the 20, 20th and 21st century, you know, it's hard to argue against this. Like, Freudian thought has become incredibly pervasive in recent memory, and it has been used to sort of self-justify one's behavior, to sort of explain away bad behavior as being kind of rooted in some sort of mental illness or, or you know, uncontrolled temperament or emotion. You know, a lot of people get pretty upset when we hear about a school shooting and, you know, because it's a white person with a gun in many of these cases, when that happens, it's usually uh, sort of explained away as, oh, this was a lone wolf shooter, he was suffering from some kind of mental illness, we can track, you know, trauma in his past or his background, that's why he did what he did, and P.S., there's a political agenda here because we don't want to admit that maybe we have a gun problem. Um, what Gardner is saying here is notice that you know, whether or not we accept the, the political expediency of like, laying this blame on the person rather than the, the, you know, legislation that might have enabled this to happen, at the very least, notice that we've also managed to dodge blaming this person as being a bad person. Um, we do not consider the morality of a lone wolf mentally ill shooter. We look for the explanation in mental illness and sort of to sort of explain away the possibility of this person being moral at all. We wipe the slate clean. 
when we say we want an explanation, what we're not saying is we want a manifesto, because many of these people had produced manifestos, and they seem to be fairly rational, at least, you know, from a distorted starting point. But what we want is, show me the trauma. Show me this kind of reduction of a human being to brute uh, motivation, rather than action as something intentional and motivated by decision. We are saying this person did not decide at all in many cases, which, you know, again, to get kind of political about it, isn't what we usually do when, say, a terrorist blows up, you know, a target because of ideological reasons, even though the two probably aren't that far apart. What Gardner is suggesting, to sort of draw this back around and not get wrapped up into a major political discussion, is that if we are going to take Freud's position and reduce people to this uncontrollable series of impulses, if we reduce them to purely the id, we undermine their free will, we stop looking for you know, motivation for others or for our own actions, and we ultimately preclude the possibility of more a moral view of the universe at all, much less in literature. So we need to get rid of it, in short. The perspective is destructive to the value of art. That's what, at the end of the day, Gardner is stressing, Gardner is suggesting here. Um, a literature that excuses every action as being something not deliberate, but the product of one's trauma or one's personal suffering, is to also preclude the possibility of people doing good things, for there being worthwhile actions in the world. Um, to say a person who, you know, killed a whole group of students at a school couldn't help but do that is to also to say they, that people who, you know, don't shoot up schools are not in any way praiseworthy for doing this. It is to reduce the possibility of morality altogether. Likewise, uh, Gardner turns his attention to Sartre in the same way. Um, in Being in Nothingness, we get Sartre's famous description of bad faith, which Gardner basically just quotes at length here, using uh, Beatrice and Dante as his examples of uh, the young suitor and the woman who refuses to accept his, uh, his attentions while also not allowing herself to, like, um, reject him outright. Um, where where Sartre sees this as an act of bad faith, where, you know, the girl letting her hand lie in the hand of the, the man without making a conscious decision either way, where Sartre sees this as bad faith, lying to oneself, some kind of, you know, duplicitous behavior that we do to escape the responsibility for our own actions, Gardner at the end of the day says, no, that is a deliberate action, that's keeping her options open. Um, there are reasons to do this. It is not some sort of inauthenticity. And Sartre is, in fact, bringing his own emotional baggage into this discussion when he is talking about this. It's probably not an accident that Gardner is blaming the woman, in this case, for bad faith more viciously than he blames the man. Um, but what Gardner is arguing here is, once again, we have a an impediment to morality in general as well as an impediment to the understanding of art as being moral or the ability to interpret art as being moral. He is at the end of the day saying that like Freud, Sartre is saying we cannot trust people to know themselves. 
Here we have two philosophies in which we as the philosopher or the psychologist can diagnose another person as though that person doesn't know themselves as well as we do. And that, on, the, on its face, is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Like, laying aside the whole context of John Gardner and art and morality here, like, I have frequently picked fights for the same reason in other lectures elsewhere. Like, if you hear me talk about Freud or Sartre in any way, chances are it's come up. Um, but what I want to stress here is not only is this undermining the possibility of morality, but it is sort of bringing about a moral perspective where we are allowing one person to tell another, no, you're not doing it for those reasons, you were doing it for some other reasons, I know because I've studied this. And this kind of thinking, this kind of thinking that reduces another person's will according to our worldview, our interpretation of events and what is possible, is incredibly dangerous. It reduces the possibility of a human being being a rational agent, being an equal. Um, we, as Freud did, assume, I know better than you why you are doing what you are doing. Therefore, I am rational, but you are not. And when Freud is, you know, called out on this, you know, isn't your smoking cigars an, an, an indicator of an oral fixation, Freud responds, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, just as Sartre would respond, you know, I am authentic, I do whatever I want, um, I am radically free, I acknowledge my responsibilities, and it uses that to be kind of a terrible person to a lot of the people in his life when you do more than just read his books. In both cases, there is a sort of moral evasion at stake here. Not just in the sense of, I am finding a way to excuse my own behavior, but in a sense that we are not only excusing our own behavior, but also condemning anyone who doesn't do the same. Who says, I am the metric by which everyone should live, and my, that metric is, I am authentically free, i.e. I am authentically not making decisions, I am authentically refusing to lie or to dissemble or to avoid the fact that, yes, all of my decisions are important. And on some level, there's a complexity here. Like, Sartre is the advocate of radical freedom, but at the same time as he is the advocate of radical freedom, he argues that all relationships are necessary necessarily competitive and combative, that everyone is trying to evade this freedom, and that therefore he is the only one who can consider himself radically free. The rest of you are all just posers, which he knows because of your refusal to accept responsibility for your actions in the specific way that Sartre understands responsibility for your actions. And this could definitely be the matter of a much longer discussion. Like, every single one of these thinkers could warrant an entire, you know, lecture unto itself. Um, and sort of reckon, reckoning with both Freud's influence on morality and Sartre's influence on morality. Like, all of this is the material for much greater stuff. What I want to stress here is that in both of these cases, Gardner is calling these thinkers out as not just being sort of philosophers against a sort of moral view of the world, but rather that many thinkers today cannot get away from these perspectives. They cannot sideline them long enough to appreciate the moral worth of a work of art in the, res in the respect that it has been considered morally worthwhile for practically, you know, 2,500 years at this point. What Gardner is saying is that for 3,000 years, we got along without Freud and Sartre stressing how you know impotent our moral efforts actually are 
and we seem to get along better without them. So why in God's name would we look at these thinkers and say they are more true and therefore process the whole of literature, the whole of morality, through these lenses? Freud and Sartre are a blight on moral fiction. And you can see this in the way that fiction tends to operate. Like, Gardner doesn't necessarily explicitly connect Freud and Sartre to the, the thinkers that he's going to talk about later, but he understands that the moral cowardice is roughly the same. Where literature used to talk about, you know, people choosing to do things, the various moralities of, of various people sort of coming into conflict with one another, the way that they do in the Odyssey and the Iliad, or the way that Dante tests himself in the Divine Comedy, or the way that we see frequently in the works of Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, this is now rendered impossible because for these new wave of artists, this contemporary crop of thinkers, all human behavior is suspect. It cannot be moral. It cannot be motivated by good reasoning. It must, at the end of the day, be because of some or psychosexual hang-up, or it must be because of some sort of bad faith and some evasion of one's own responsibility. These attitudes have crept into the whole of literature, and here in the 1970s, there is no way to escape them for John Gardner. All literature has been perverted by them in some respect. Now, the third thinker that he brings up, Wittgenstein, is, I think, a kind of different discussion. Um, so here, you know, in Freud and Sartre, we have two fundamental attacks on morality itself. For Wittgenstein, we have sort of the other dimension uh, being discussed here. Namely, the value of literature itself, the value of writing, and the, the possibility of, you know, communicating through language at all. Um, as he writes on page 48 to 49, what Wittgenstein's program and that of numerous positivists and analysts who have followed him was as moral and humane as ever conceived by a philosopher, partly because of the general situation in Europe in his day, World War I, the rise of the Nazis, and World War II, he meant to demonstrate what Occam and the nominalists had sought to demonstrate centuries earlier, that language is very tricky, that philosophy has a tendency to mislead, and that most of the connections that philosophy makes are illusory, so that its work is, among other things, a bad excuse for killing people. Picking at language, at hidden metaphors and implied existence that aren't really there, he showed that most of traditional philosophy, certainly all metaphysics, tends not to stand up under close linguistic scrutiny. Philosophy, he showed, can rarely get to significant truth, though truth may exist as the inexpressible. At Dante's first words, now mezzo del camin de, de nostra vita, Wittgenstein would interrupt politely, now in exactly what sense? Dante would never reach paradise at that pace. The poet might have answered, he did in fact answer, though Wittgenstein was still centuries from the light of the world, that only art can express the inexpressible. But hemmed in by doubters, confronted by men who claim, as Occam would do, though the phrase is positivist, one man cannot feel another's toothache, he would never have written the Commedia. He would have written, at best, the comic and ironic Canterbury Tales. So where Sartre and Freud are antagonists to the entire moral outlook of the universe and therefore sort of uh, undermining the possibility of moral fiction as a consequence, Wittgenstein is undermining the possibility of our communication. And it's worth noting that Gardner connects this to the nominalists and to Occam specifically. Namely, of course, Gardner goes to a medieval philosopher to sort of interpret and re-understand Wittgenstein. Um, and as a consequence, I think Gardner is being a little unfair to Wittgenstein here, but notice that Gardner seems to be aware of this as well. 
Um, where he kind of calls out Freud and Sartre for their fundamentally immoral views of the world, or rather the fundamentally immoral view that has kind of come to be dominant as a consequence of their views of the world. Freud especially, like he mentions, you know, yeah, we've disproved all of Freud, and yet nonetheless we are still stuck with him, it seems. Um, for Wittgenstein, he says his goal was moral. You know, coming off of World War One and the propagandistic efforts of world leading up to World War II, like we talked about in the Gasset essay, Wittgenstein was trying to stress that philosophy has been a bad justification for bad behavior many times in the past. And therefore, we need to be much more careful with our language and the way that we talk about things. And on that front, that's not a problem. Like, yes, I don't think Gardner has a terribly great issue with maybe we should be more careful with about what we're saying, seeing as he's going to condemn all of these writers for doing just that. But the key here, the reason why Gardner singles out Wittgenstein and the sort of, again, popular understanding of Wittgenstein is because so many artists today, here in the 1970s, are unable to get past it. The main criticism that Gardner has of most of the writers that have become popular in his time are a sort of moral cowardice. And that moral cowardice springs from, among other things, Freud's perspective on, you know, there not being any morality, not motivated by some sort of primal sexual urge, or Sartre's understanding that all moral uh, morality is fundamentally suspect, but also, importantly, the fact that it can't be communicated to us. Um, and that kind of divides Gardner's stable of writers into two very distinct categories. Something that he's going to talk about a little bit later, but a category that he largely understands and explains better elsewhere, specifically in the art of fiction. Um, he talks about literature as having two fundamental functions, what he calls primary and secondary literature. And primary literature is moral in this sense. It is about promulgating values. It is about communicating ideas. It is about, you know, convincing everyone to follow whatever rules or laws you believe are just. This is what Dante is doing. This is what Homer is doing. This is what Tolstoy is doing. They are telling stories and their first goal is as storytellers. But Gardner identifies where, you know, we have this distinction between the modern and the postmodern, and the modern is, you know, old hat at this point, and the postmodern is what's being praised as exciting and new and forward-thinking and so on. Gardner sees postmodern fiction as being essentially of this much older secondary type, namely fiction about fiction, fiction that is criticizing and exposing and engaged in the business of questioning the primary literature that has gone before. So, for example, if Homer is engaged in a predominantly primary work of fiction, telling a story about Achilles and the, you know, war in, war in Ilium, it is Plato in the Republic who is going to question that, who is going to interrogate that role, who is going to engage with mythology and ask questions about its worth and its power. It is going to expose the weaknesses in Homer in order to stress to us that it is, at the end of the day, just a story. Fast forward a little bit, we can see it even more clearly. Take, for example, the, Roman, the medieval romances about the knights of King Arthur and, you know, chivalric romance and courtly love, the likes of, you know, uh, Le Mort d'Arthur or Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. 
which were predominantly primary fiction, though it is always complicated, um, telling stories about the heroic exploits of knights and their, their accomplishments, and then look at the likes of something like Don Quixote by Cervantes, which is very much criticizing the stock-in-trade of all of these cheap knockoffs of Mallory and these chivalric romances, writers who um, are presenting these ridiculous affairs and they're super fantastic and it's more about the fantasy than it is about the morality and it's, you know, less rooted in Christian teaching than it is in just, you know, writers who clearly don't know how to string two sentences together but are profiting off of the sort of gullibility um, of all of these readers. Cervantes's Don Quixote is very much structured as a work of secondary fiction, questioning and challenging the other works of the time, exposing how ridiculous they are in an effort to undermine the pernicious effect that they have had on others. And we need to do that. Um, for a much more contemporary example, think of the likes of, like, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the sort of classic military shooter that, you know, spawned the entire genre of, like, contemporary military shooters, and Spec Ops The Line, which questioned and challenged and undermined the validity of that outlook and largely did a lot to make the genre much less influential than it was 10, 15 years ago. Like, both games are incredibly important. Both games are very moral in some respect. But the excesses that the primary strain of this storytelling uh, tended to get to had to be curtailed and corrected by Spec Ops The Line's secondary act. So Gardner is saying both are necessary. But the key is, here in 1978, secondary literature has become much more popular than primary literature. The likes of John Barth and William Gass are all that we are seeing, and no one has the courage of their convictions, the sort of moral outlook necessary to say to themselves, I believe this and want you to believe this and am willing to tell a story to convince you of this. They are not interested in the moral uh, dimensions or ramifications of just living in the world, and instead they are too caught up with exposing the fictions of the business of writing fiction. So, with that in mind, if our heroes here are Tolstoy, Homer, and Dante, and the premises that tend to undermine our correct interpretation of them are the ones brought about by Freud and Sartre with their... Uh, sort of undermining of morality and Wittgenstein with his undermining of, you know, like the ability of language to communicate, what we're left with are these two schools of bad writers, or at least not as effective as they could be writers that Gardner very much singles out here for his long list. And on the one hand, we have these secondary fiction writers, the metafiction writers, the likes of William Gass, especially, as, you know, he's quoted pretty extensively here, um, as well as John Barth, a, you know, who Gardner keeps coming back to frequently throughout his, his discussion here. Gass is 100% a writer convinced by Wittgenstein's outlook that we cannot communicate moral material through literature, through language, and therefore his work is consistently an effort to obscure that, an effort to undermine the writings of other thinkers who, you know, are trying to uh, convince us of some sort of underlining moral truth. Um, I haven't read much in the way of William Gass. I'm much more familiar with John Barth just because I 
you know, did college on the Eastern Shore and his novels were readily available there. Um, but at the same time, Gardner gives us plenty of good examples of what Gass is doing here. Um, so as he writes on page 69, he begins his philosophical poetic essay on being blue as follows. Blue pencils, blue noses, blue movies, laws, blue legs and stockings, the language of birds, bees, and flowers as sung by longshoremen that lead-like look the skin has when affected by cold, contusion, sickness, fear, the rotten rum or gin they call blue ruin and the blue devils of its delirium. Russian cats and oysters, a withheld or imprisoned breath, the blue they say that diamonds have, deep holes in the ocean and the blazers which English athletes earn that gentlemen may wear. And we go on for another paragraph, and Gardner tells us immediately afterwards that this continues to go on for pages and pages. Gas, in describing blue, is not interested in telling a story. He is not interested in sort of promoting some sort of polemical agenda. He is not trying to convince us of anything. He doesn't have an argument to make. All that he is doing is this sort of linguistic association game. It is deliberately obfuscated. Every time we start to see something that Gas is doing, maybe something that he is pointing to, some dimension of blueness that links a couple of the ideas in, in his uh, description here, he immediately undermines it with something that is completely different, that is also blue in some respect, but not blue in the same way. So take that, uh, that lead-like look the skin has when affected by cold, contusion, sickness, fear. So we are now thinking about blue as something unhealthy, something that disfigures the pallor, something uncomfortable. And yet he immediately changes it to the rotten rum or gin they call blue ruin and the blue devils of its delirium. Okay, so once again we are in sort of grossness, grotesqueness territory. Like we have these associations of, alright, the blue of unhealthiness on the one hand and the blue caused by these liquors on the other. But then we immediately switch to Russian cats and oysters, a withheld or imprisoned breath, the blue they say that diamonds have which totally frustrates and sort of disintegrates whatever associations we've built at this point. Every time we start to make connections, every time we start to expand our thinking beyond the space in the text, what Grass is saying, every time the, as we might, you know, use the, the line from other writers, any time that we start that vivid and continuous dream, Gas deliberately goes out of his way to stop it. He wants it to be obfuscated. Um, in music, painting, theater, and poetry, Gardner says, this kind of thing is sometimes praised as circuit overload. No one has yet satisfactorily explained why in troubled times we should overload our circuits. Um, this is what Gardner wants to point out. And we should notice that this is something not new to our discussion. This is the same stuff that Tolstoy was pointing out when he was criticizing Mallarmé and Baudelaire a hundred years ago. Um, this is the same sort of emphasis on literature as being deliberately obfuscating and therefore reserved for this small group of elites, these people who do in fact want to work to interpret um, literature or who want to discover the meaning for themselves, just as Tolstoy was saying a long time ago. And importantly, this is also the same sort of literature championed by Derrida in the last discussion. Like, 
Derrida is admittedly not talking about William Gass. Presumably he's not familiar with him. American literature possibly hasn't gotten over to France at this point, or maybe, you know, Derrida is familiar with Gass and doesn't care to mention him, or maybe this isn't exactly what Derrida has in mind. But if Derrida is a champion of language as association, language as, you know, saying everything that can be said, on the one hand, we might very well look at this and say, okay, so the business of, you know, hiding and, and revealing, disclosing and non-disclosing that Derrida celebrates, you know, what he aspires to in his own work could very well be the same sort of thing that Gass is doing here, except that where Derrida is interested in the play, the business of going from disclosing to obfuscating and back and forth, Gas just wants to obfuscate. Gas just wants it to be opaque. Gas confronts you with a wall of text and says, if you were getting meaning out of this, you were doing it wrong. Trying to get meaning out of text is exactly the sort of bad behavior I'm interested in criticizing and condemning here. And again, Gardner is stressing secondary fiction has a purpose. It has worth. It is necessary to correct the, you know, excesses of literary traditions, to, you know, overcome the falsehoods that are promulgated by bad storytellers, or at least careless storytellers. You know, we need people to call out bad news programs as bad news programs in order to, you know, try and wake up the people who have been taken in by them. In the same way that we needed, you know, Cervantes to show us how ridiculous so many chivalric romances were, and how we needed Tom Jones to undermine the epic, and how we needed, you know, any number of writers to sort of question the trends at the time and to sort of turn them on their heads. We needed Mel Brooks to make Blazing Saddles and kill the Western. We needed, you know various, like, Deadpool movies or other things to, you know, question the superhero genre. Like, this is part of the way that art works, and that's a good thing. But Gardner is saying, here is Gas making this attack on literature altogether, and one, there is no clear target here. There is no satirical object of, of ridicule or some attempt to sort of like draw attention to a specific kind of art being sort of rejected here. Instead, there is just this blanket condemnation. Art cannot do this in this Wittgensteinian sense, or arguably this Derridian sense. Gas isn't interested in, you know, correcting some sort of moral excess, he is instead criticizing all morality in art, criticizing all possibility of art to communicate. And this is consistent among many of these secondary writers here in the 1970s. Barth, too, is frequently drawing attention to the artifice of his own work, drawing attention to the fact that his characters are just words and therefore not able to communicate deep truths. This is just criticism for criticism's sake. It's destruction for destruction's sake. It is nihilism without the objective of overturning some corrupt morality the way that Nietzsche justified it. It's just destruction. And if so, why? What is the evil that is being communicated in the 1970s that so desperately needs to be undone? What literature has been produced that has such a negative moral influence on people? 
Like, yes, there might very well be a space for, hey, have you noticed that, like, literature in the 1950s and 60s and 70s is super racist? Maybe there should be racist, like, dismantling or deconstruction of these things. That would be a totally legitimate artistic aim. That's what Derrida is suggesting when he talks about phallogocentrism and how, you know, so many feminist works are at the end of the day sort of dovetailing with these conservative agendas because they don't bother to question the assumptions that these phallogocentric works have taken upon themselves, whether unwitting or otherwise. But that's not here. That's not what Gas is doing. Gas is saying, criticize all of it. Throw it all out. Reject all of it. He is ridiculing all of us for taking any literature seriously, at all not just the bad stuff. Barth is doing something fairly similar, although, as Gardner emphasizes, he's more fun to read because he's at least cheerful about it, where Gas is just purely obfuscating, presents you with a block of language and, you know, defies you to interpret it, even makes it impossible to interpret. Barth, at least, is playing games. Um, Gardner refers a couple of times here to some of the stories in Lost in the Funhouse, and specifically Lost in the Funhouse itself, which is like the one work of Barthes that I have in fact been able to get through, largely because it's a short story collection and you can like put it down for a while um, and come back to it and you don't just get confronted with like 600 pages of Guile's Goat Boy or the Sotweed Factor or whatever. Um, and I've read Lost in the Funhouse, and it is, at the end of the day, a writer sort of grappling with the problems of writing and the failures of writing and the inability to create the vivid and continuous dream at the same time as we make the vivid and continuous dream. Um, Barth kind of works on that front in a way that Gas just doesn't, in a way that Gas is just frankly unreadable. But Gardner is emphasizing that Barth, at the end of the day, is still engaged in the same process. He is still a nihilist. He is still rejecting the possibility of art to communicate moral truths. That is the moral truth that he is trying to communicate, and he even hedges that from time to time. In both of these cases, we are looking at secondary fiction, secondary literature gone wildly awry. A secondary literature that itself is attacking all literature without any respect for the excesses or problems that it has, just attacking it on the very foundation of what literature is. Attacking it because it is fundamentally immoral or unable to be moral, like Freud and Sartre would suggest, or because it's unable to communicate morality the way that Wittgenstein would suggest. So, on the one hand, here are these thinkers who are actively engaged in tearing down the possibility of literature, the possibility of art, something that, you know, Gardner does expand to the other arts. He talks about music, he talks about performance, he talks about theater, um, and he largely criticizes all of them at, for being, at the end of the day, kind of baseless and more interested in, you know, the mechanics of their own apparatus than the stories that they could possibly tell. Um, you know, like a John Cage five minutes of silence sort of uh, work of music or something. Um, but on the other hand, the other writers that John Gardner is attacking here, the ones that make the list that I read earlier, um, tend to be primary fiction writers who have lost their nerve in some sense. Writers who are in fact trying to tell stories, but who hedge themselves or, you know, pen themselves in with so much irony, or are so unable to confront the moral truths that they are attempting to communicate that they ultimately come off as ineffectual. Um, 
So here we're going to look at a couple of different examples because Gardner brings up quite a few, honestly. Um, and we don't have the time to sort of confront every single one of them. Um, but it is especially interesting to sort of deal with a couple that, you know, have in fact survived to this day. Um, and those that are, you know, to some degree, like, still recognized and appreciated today. Um, so let's start with E.L. Doctorow, um, which Gardner sort of brings up to, to illustrate a kind of important point that he's making here. Namely, here is Doctorow, who does in fact have a socially moral agenda in mind. He is in fact trying to do moral fiction, which you can tell because he, like, stops the book every now and again to bring up these important progressive ideals that he wants to talk about. But for Gardner... Uh, Dr. O kind of undermines his own point here. Um, so in comparison with the true artist's celebration of the permanently moral, he begins on 78, both programs are nevertheless secondary and can only produce art which, with the passing of its age, must lose force. Moreover, weak programs can lead to screeching or straining for effect. E.L. Doctorow in Ragtime urges social justice in a more or less moving and persuasive way, but he is not concerned with true morality. After talk of policemen, evil capitalists, and strikebreakers, he has a scene in which the anarchist Emma Goldman gives a massage and a message to the now naked famous beauty Evelyn Nesbitt, while a character known only as Mother's Younger Brother peeks from a closet. It's a scene filled, naturally, with prurient interest. There's nothing essentially wrong with that from the point of view of the moral critic, and filled also with a strong and convincing tirade on women's rights. Though the relationship between the two women is not sexual, Evelyn is sexually aroused. Dr. O writes, dramatically ending his chapter, Her pelvis rose from the bed as if seeking something in the air. Goldman was now at the bureau, capping her bottled emollient, her back to Evelyn as the younger woman began to ripple on the bed like a wave of the sea. At this moment, a hoarse, unearthly cry issued from the walls. The closet door flew open, and Mother's younger brother fell into the room, his face twisted in a paroxysm of of saintly mortification. He was clutching in his hands as if trying to choke it, a rampant penis, which, scornful of his intentions, whipped him about the floor, launching to his cries of ecstasy or despair, great filamented spurts of jism that traced the air like bullets, and then settled slowly over Evelyn in her bed like falling ticker tape. Gardner re responds to this with a direct quote from Tolstoy's essay on Guy de Maupassant, namely that there is a confusion here. Um, an interest in obscenity that obscures and sort of conflicts with the morality that he is trying to con convey. And Gardner emphasizes a little bit later, even in the hands of young and highly excited men, penises do not behave as Dr. O maintains. Dr. O's mind is elsewhere. He's after a flashy chapter ending and reality can go nit. Bullets and tip ticker tape fall over poor victimized Evelyn, a matter we've intended to register as lightheartedly symbolic, teaching us a truth. But what truth the writer might have discovered if he'd carefully followed how things really do happen, we will never know. This is what Gardner finds frustrating here. Here is an author who is, in fact, trying to be moral, who does, in fact, have some moral, you know, authorial message to communicate to his audience, but it is handled so clumsily, so ham-handedly, so out of touch with reality itself, that Gardner finds it fraudulent, and he argues that most readers should as well. What makes Tolstoy or Homer or Dante so compelling is that there is truth 
to what they're talking about. Not just capital T truth in the sense of some grand philosophical truth, some grand moral message that they're trying to convey that aligns with our own sense of morality, but rather that they are using lowercase t truth, i.e. real stuff happening around us to explain that. Tolstoy's characters are eminently believable. They are characterized painstakingly. We are invited and encouraged to sort of you know, enter in and, and identify with them, to feel as they feel, to emotionally resonate with their triumphs and losses. These are things that Tolstoy is an absolute master at. But Gardner is stressing that here, Doctoro is giving us characters engaged in this prurient act, which is, you know, theoretically fine, but at the end of the day, is just exciting, is just silly, is just funny. It is, rather than being true in the capital T sense and true in the lowercase t sense, it is attempting to be capital T true while being wildly lowercase t false. And therefore doesn't work. This adherence to the philosophy at the expense of reality undermines both. And our trust in the author is weakened as a consequence. There is a primary writer trying to tell a story and failing because we don't believe the story that we are being told. We are encouraged not to believe it, if anything. Now, we could ask some fairly serious questions about this at this point. Like here in the 21st century, you know, in the age of a sort of wider adoption of magical realism and in, in a sort of, you know, world where we are happy to accept the sort of you know, genre trappings or excesses of something like Quentin Tarantino shooting up a movie theater in Inglorious Bastards, we might very well say, so what's the problem here? Why, why is that a bad thing? Why can't stylistic excess itself be, you know, true in some other different sense? Why must we, you know, insist on realistic fiction um, when realistic fiction is often so boring and so awful? And I think that's kind of speaking to exactly the problem that Gardner is talking about here. We have lost our taste for capital T and lowercase t truth. We frequently just sideline it altogether. Like, if you think about all of the movies, all of the television, all of the, you know, literature, all of the video games that we tend to hold up as being paradigmatic or great in our contemporary age, we will probably pick out more fantasy and science fiction and period pieces than we will contemporary discussions of the contemporary circumstances. Like, when was the last time that we actually watched a movie set in our own time and thought it was incredibly compelling without it also being rooted in some sort of speculative elements? Like, seriously, think about that question for a moment. I'm pretty sure the last time a movie won an Oscar for Best Picture and was successfully set in the modern world was Parasite by a South Korean director, and part of the reason why everyone loved Parasite so much is because it was kinda hyper-stylized in this particular Dr. O sense, not because it was necessarily all that believable. And Boon Jong-ho got his start directing works of speculative fiction. Snowpiercer, a, you know, post-apocalyptic dystopian movie, and Okja, which is similarly dystopian. We, once again, don't do this. 
haven't done this in ages. Like, we love to set our fiction in time periods to sort of make a throwback to the 1990s or 1970s or 1950s or even further, but we are very, very unable to sort of talk directly about our own era, to talk about our own circumstances, and make that morally compelling in any way. We are cowards in this exact same sense. Like, we're unable to do it. Um, the last time I read a novel that successfully did that was probably Jonathan Franzen's Purity, and it is worth noting that he has since gone back to writing period pieces. Um, Crossroads was set in the 1970s. Um, it's virtually impossible to find a work of realistic fiction that has in fact taken place in the world that we've lived in. That's kind of sad, if you think about it. Now, I'm not trying to say that, like, this doesn't exist at all. Like, obviously it does. But it is rare. And those couple of works that do, in fact, do this rarely achieve a sort of notoriety or significance or notice. Whether it's in film or in theater or in literature or, you know, any of these media, it just doesn't happen. How did that happen? Like, how have we gone from the age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Dickens and, you know, Jane Austen writing very much about the social issues at that particular moment, their reality as they understood it, to a world where we are more likely to take our moral advice and our serious consideration of the world from fantasy writers and science fiction writers and genre fare of all types? Like again, I have nothing against genre fare. I love science fiction. You've heard me talk about Bradbury for, you know, ten weeks. You will not hear me criticize it at all. But that's supposed to be doing something else. There is an absolute dearth of literature talking about our time in a way that isn't either deliberately prurient or in some way structured as a thriller like Gone Girl or something like that. That's disquieting. It's uncomfortable. We should have more questions about this. Where did our literature of the moment actually run off to? But let's continue. After talking about Dr. O, Gardner confronts one of the writers that has, in fact, survived from his own age, um, criticizes him, admittedly, more than most people would, but nonetheless, we're talking about Kurt Vonnegut here. Um, and Vonnegut, you know, everybody does in fact still read Vonnegut. He's one of the few writers from the 1960s and 70s that we still do kind of consider a master in his own right and consider most of his works to be masterful in their own right. Um, and it's worth noting that like while we might very, very well be able to question Gardner on the front of like, well, why are you, you know, picking on, on Vonnegut? Haven't you read these other more important works? You know, where we might question, like, why are you talking about something happened of Heller's rather than Catch-22? Notice that when he, in fact, talks about Vonnegut, he's pretty obviously talking about Slaughterhouse-Five. Like, the work that everyone tends to hold up as Vonnegut's great masterpiece. Um, so as Gardner writes on page 87, Vonnegut and Heller are similarly inventive and similarly cool-hearted. And they're differing ways about their characters. Vonnegut's writing is a classic example of what Fowles means when he speaks of inadequate will. Vonnegut reportedly has a theory that one should say no more than necessary, so the description consists of, in effect, one-liners. 
and character is tone, mostly the same tone throughout. The result is that his novels have the feel of first-class comic books, trash culture elevated to art, if you will, and can easily be read by people who dislike long sentences. Possibly Vonnegut is not telling the whole story when he speaks of his theory of keeping things short. He also tells us that he endlessly rewrites, and though that's surprising, since revision often leads to subtlety and richness, Vonnegut is doubtless telling the truth. If so, then his problem as an artist may be partly psychological. He's overcritical of himself, endlessly censoring, endlessly reconsidering his moral affirmations. That would explain the seeming cold-heartedness and trivial-mindedness of his famous comment on the American firebombing of Dresden, So It Goes. A desperate, perhaps over-censored attitude mindlessly echoed by the turned-off and cynical. Vonnegut's cynical disciples read him wrong, of course. It is Vonnegut himself who points out the vast and systematic modern evils that he then appears to shrug off or, for some reason, blame on God. But the misreading is natural. Vonnegut's moral energy is forever flagging, his fight forever turning slapstick. He's most himself as, in Breakfast of Champions or a Saturday Evening Post stories, he's most openly warm-hearted and comic. His lack of commitment, ultimately a lack of concern about his characters, makes his writing slight. Think about that as well for a moment. Like, Slaughterhouse-Five is a bitter condemnation of the firebombing of Dresden. It is a bitter condemnation specifically because its horror is so immense that Vonnegut doesn't find words to communicate it. So it goes is the admission not just that these things happen, but that there is nothing that can later be said about it. But it is worth noting that Slaughterhouse-Five also has some really great lines about, you know, the father telling his son, I, I forbid you from ever participating in a massacre. A line so blatantly understated, so wildly understated, that we are sort of left kind of stunned by it. How do we deal with the fact that this was in fact a thing that happened, that we are in fact partially culpable for, that it was our government, our military, that we allowed to do this? How did oversight fail that much? And notice that Gardner recognizes that there is a difference between Vonnegut's own statement, where he is clearly horrified and upset and traumatized and doesn't know how to respond to this, versus the response of his, you know, the people who celebrate Vonnegut, his fans, who seem to take this nihilism as being itself admirable on its face. Gardner calls Vonnegut out. You are being a coward. You are shrugging and sliding away, as he says later. Um, you are refusing to deal with the accountability for these actions, for the morality of this, where people should have been punished, where people should have been condemned, where you should have been able to say more than just, so it goes. You need to be able to confront this. And just as he was condemning Sartre earlier, we see the same sort of acceptance of absurdism, the sort of hallmark of existential philosophy, sort of elevated, if not denigrated, to this state that Vonnegut sort of brings it out here. Namely, we had, you must take accountability for your actions, you must be responsible, even though you live in an absurd world, the likes of a Sartre or a Kafka would tell us, now reduced to, I cannot deal with this world, I cannot confront the moral realities of this universe, and therefore must somehow square my participation and culpability in this horrific atrocity with the fact that these atrocities are happening all the time, that this is just part of reality now. So it goes, he says. 
every time somebody dies, every time some atrocity is committed, how else can we respond? Gardner says, you got to respond somehow. You have to be able to give us more than just this tacit acceptance. Because that same tacit acceptance belies the horror that you are feeling. It is, at the end of the day, condoning this sort of behavior. So it goes, I guess it's just going to keep happening. Might as well, you know, knock off for a nap. When that's not what Vonnegut actually believes or wants us to take away. This is a weak attack on something that should be attacked much more strongly in Gardner's lights, and has been in other more confident writers. Now, at the end of the day, I am still a fan of Vonnegut, even a fan of Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, I honestly think Vonnegut's better work is, just as Gardner says, in his Saturday Evening Post stories. Like, I don't know if you've read the Welcome to the Monkey House collection or encountered any of Vonnegut's other short stories, but the dude was born to be a short story writer, and his novels just pale in comparison, in my opinion. Like, I tend to prefer Cat's Cradle over Slaughterhouse-Five anyway, um, largely because Cat's Cradle deals more directly with the systematic horrors that he's confronting there, rather than sort of the psychological fallout of that sort of thing. But notice the connection here. The same sort of Freudian and Sartrean powerlessness, the same sort of, you know, we are victims of, like, our own psychology in Freud's case, or our own will to avoid responsibility in Sartre's case, is now sort of conflated with this systematic acceptance, this recognition that the systems that govern our world are powerful and inhumane in many cases, and therefore Vonnegut refuses to confront or, or like, uh, challenge the horrors of this reality. In many of his short stories, he is more able to do that. He is able to leave a more lasting impression in the likes of something like Harrison Bergeron. Or for that matter, on the other side, the Foster Portfolio. I love the Foster Portfolio. If you haven't read the Foster for Portfolio, go and read the friggin' Foster Portfolio. I love it. Um, Vonnegut is so much more humane there, so much more able to sort of reckon with these characters and their ways of dealing with this absurd moral universe that is in fact so powerful and oppressive and damning at the same time as he is able to like spin some real reactions to them. So what Gardner is saying here is both Doctorow with his disinterest in reality and Vonnegut with his, you know, sort of casual inability to deal with the moral realities he's wrestling with, both of them are, at the end of the day, producing something less than moral fiction. They are producing something akin to moral cowardice. They are failing in so many dramatic ways. Um, that's to let alone someone like Heller or Barthelm. Heller and Something Happened or Barthelm in uh, the short story um, that Gardner sort of extensively quotes here, who are actively involved in sort of accepting this nihilistic perspective. Um, nihilism is being increasingly praised, Gardner notices. This is one of the things that he's so upset about. This is one of the things that you know he identifies with this postmodernism that the critics seem to be championing so hard. But what he is ultimately questioning is why? Why are we accepting this nihilism? Why are we letting Bartelm tell this story about a horrific accident where the world doesn't behave the way that it's supposed to and where everything is just, you know, meaningless and silly and painful and stupid and dumb and bad? Why are we accepting Heller's 
Bob Slocum, the petty tyrant that he is as the hero of his novel. Like, even to some degree, John Gardner seems to be pretty critical of Catch-22, presumably for the same sort of moral, uh, sort of, like, surrender that Vonnegut is doing in Slaughterhouse-Five. And I, again, love Catch-22, like that one I reread frequently, although it is for the same sort of recognition of the systematic oppressions and, and ter terror that, you know, Vonnegut is highlighting in Slaughterhouse-Five and elsewhere. Gardner is stressing these people are holding up this vision of the world where these actions are impotent and where people can't get things done, where yes, they are isolating and highlighting these systematic injustices, but not giving us any way of dealing with them, not allowing us to solve them, not, you know, encouraging their characters to do something about them. Um, something happens, ends with Bob Slocum getting power, the ability to change things, and now he is a monster just like the rest of the characters in this book. Is that really the only conclusion we can come to, Gardner is kind of asking here. Like, look at what we've essentially isolated here as the primary two schools of writers here in the 1970s. On the one hand, we have the secondary writers, the John Barths and the William Gattises and the William Gaddises, who are actively engaged in deconstructing literature and making it impossible for it to be effectual anymore, who are questioning the very foundation of moral action itself and arguing that all literature is nothing more than just a bunch of words strung together. His characters are just words strung together, therefore you cannot trust them or believe them or identify with them or encourage them or, you know, empathize with them. And on the other hand, we have a bunch of writers who are trying to tell stories with characters and with plots and settings and stories, but who end up ultimately hampered or hobbled by their inability to confront the moral realities that they are facing. These are, at the end of the day, books about impotence, books where choice does not matter, books where people's actions are, at the end of the day, some kind of Freudian or Sartrean dodge. These at the end of the day, are ineffectual for these reasons. We have a wide variety of writers who are either cowards or actively engaged in destroying the foundations of literature. Why? Gardner is asking. And to tie this back to his sort of original grandiose expectations, this art is the tool that is holding back the darkness, Note that he says, you know, it's all well and good for us to be discussing, you know, the f niceties of language, the niceties of literature, some sort of Derridian deconstruction perspective on what is, you know, capable of being said by literature. That's all well and good, but it is indecent when the immorality of art is doing such great harm otherwise. As he says, you know, it's all fine and good to study the nope, the hairs on an elephant's nose, but it's indecent when the elephant is trotting on the baby. Yes, it's good to do this sort of self-analysis, this self-criticism, this self-examination, but it's way easier than actually coming to conclusions, than actually coming to answers, than actually writing something compelling that pits these moralities against each other and sees what is actually at stake here. Say what you want about Gardner's literature, about his novels. His characters are have agency. They do things. Their morality is on display here. They are more than just ciphers or symbols. They are more than just impotent characters wrestling with their own personal trauma. They are more than just things on a page. They are living beings.
And maybe they aren't confronting something as great as the systematic injustices that Vonnegut or Heller is sort of bringing up in their novels, but at the very least, they can do things in the world that they see fit. They see small-scale injustices, and they are enabled to either confront them or they cowardly walk away from them and are justly condemned and punished for them. Gardner gives us characters who do, in fact, have accountability, who are, in fact, dealing with the consequences of their actions. Again, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but this is kind of what Gardner is most interested in. And it is telling that one of the works that is most sort of directly confronting this is in fact the one that is his most famous and most popular, though also the most widely misinterpreted, namely Grendel. Grendel is a story, the story of Beowulf from Grendel's perspective. And like many writers before him who have sort of painted the, a classic antagonist as the main character of his novel, many take Grendel to be sympathetic and many take his philosophical perspective to be, you know, what Gardner is trying to represent, but it is very clearly not the case. Gardner represents Grendel, as he should be, as a monster. A monster who denies the reality of his morality, who denies his agency in the world, who sees himself as being horribly maligned, and who, at the end of the day, decides to kill a bunch of people because what else is he going to do? Because he's bored otherwise. He has a classic postmodern Barthian or Gassian protagonist who hates the world and is miserable and who is something between Dostoevsky's underground man but with no redeeming qualities and not as some sort of diagnosis of his age, except Gardner makes him a diagnosis of the modern protagonists in these novels written in the 1970s. And importantly, when Gardner confronts Beowulf, the hero of the story, the hero who refuses to accept Grendel's ridiculous nihilism as a, pers as a philosophical perspective, and who instead says in the, the big climax of the novel, feel the hardness of the door, feel the hardness of the wall, you cannot that. You cannot deal with the base level morality of this world. You cannot deny that things are things, that there are real issues to be dealt with, that pain is in fact real and not just a figment of the imagination, and then wrenches his arm off to prove it. Grendel has to go away defeated. The nihilism that all of these characters, all of these writers are promulgating, Gardner defeats in a single blow. Of course there's morality. Of course we are engaged in these struggles. Of course there is this battle of good versus evil. Yes, there are systemic injustices. And yes, we must suffer through them. And yes, we are often powerless before them. And yes, it is often absurd. But that doesn't mean that it's okay to scream out the person at the checkout counter at the grocery store, or to justify our bad behavior, or to commit adultery, or to shoot up a school. These are still bad things. They still make the world that much darker and more awful, and there is no justification for them. Not in some Freudian or Sartrean evasive sense, not in some Wittgensteinian lack of acknowledgement that morality can be communicated. Art is supposed to tell us that's wrong, and you're not. You are cowardly walking away from it. You are refusing to acknowledge what a person can do. 
either because you don't believe they can, which shows some pretty great and grievous psychological weakness, or because you aren't talented enough to present it, you aren't confident enough to present it. These writers could say better and don't. There have been writers who have said better, and we're relying on them instead. We are lost by Gardner's reckoning. Utterly and completely lost. And I should stress, sort of fast-forwarding to the 2023, I don't think it's as bad as all that anymore. Like, I do think we have a major problem insofar as we are trying to communicate these same moral truisms, not through some sort of sober-minded reflection on our own situation and times, but through fantastical stories of superheroes or, you know, fantasy or, you know, fictions about some, some period of history. Like, the fact that we are unable to talk about how to be a person in the 21st century without resorting to hyper-stylization or some kind of superficial, you know, undermining of characters, that's bad. That's very bad. But at the same time, we haven't totally lost our way. We do have more writers engaged in this sort of moral discussion, even if it is in the context of fantasy or science fiction or period history. We have our Into the Spider-Verses talking about what it means to continue standing up against evil when evil consistently keeps beating us. We have our Downton Abbeys, set in the 1910s, but still imposing this very real binary morality between selfish, awful people taking their, you know, opportunities to screw good, decent, hard-working people over and people triumphing over that evil. This is clear. Like, it does exist here. We are seeing a world, a literary world that feels comfortable condemning bad morality and upholding virtue in a way that we didn't before. And some of that is something that Gardner is only seeing the beginning of. I would definitely hold up Toni Morrison as being a moral writer by Gardner's lights here, as being very much empowered and encouraged to talk about the moral ills of her time. For that matter, I'd point to Octavia Butler as well, though she very much is working in the science fiction sphere. She very much has a moral head on her shoulders. Maybe Gardner doesn't see them. Maybe they're not the ones that Gardner's talking about. At any rate, we are left with some pretty big questions here. First off, how are you supposed to do this? Because apparently we've lost the ability. Like, it's gone. Somehow, for the last 50 years since Gardner's been writing, we are pretty much hard-pressed to find realistic fiction dealing with real moral issues in a way that is confident in the way that sort of tells us how we should behave without resorting to fantasy, science fiction, speculative elements, etc. We should definitely be worried about that. We should definitely wonder what it is about our world that we are so unable to deal with or wrestle with or confront or... You know, is it something on the level of the, the writer, or is it something on the level of the world itself? These are big, meaningful questions. So, we should take solace in there being moral compasses among our artists today. 
but we should be concerned that these artists aren't confronting our moral reality, that they are instead holding up other realities as symbols or allegories of our own. It's not as bad, but there are still problems that we need to confront. So next time we'll look at how to possibly confront them. Um, next time we will see Gardner's formula for how to write moral fiction, how to do moral criticism, and how to sort of get out of the trap that we find ourselves in here at the beginning of the first part. And chances are we will have even more occasion to talk about Gardner's own work and his own solutions for talking about the moral realities here in the 1980s, or, or 1970s and 1980s. Uh, but that is a discussion for next time. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.